0: When you start to pull this apart, you had such massive generation loss that ERCOT, you couldn't even roll the blackout. Take out feeders that that are for hospitals and police stations, or they have frequency or stability issues, you can't take them out either. Pretty soon you get down to a narrow fleet of options of people that you can black out, and then they're gonna get the brunt of it. As the storm hit Texas, power-generating plants across the state were knocked offline. Without that supply, the Electricity Reliability Council of Texas, known as ERCOT, ordered utilities to cut power to homes inside the statewide power grid. Purpose of having an electricity market is to deliver electricity to homes and businesses, right? Yes. And we know that for several days, electricity didn't go to homes and businesses, right? Quite a few of them. The lawsuit alleges
1: gross negligence by the power grid operator and the electricity provider, saying it led to the death of 11-year-old Christian Pendenda. It's just hard to say in any aspect that it's a success because
2: there
3: was so much suffering and, and damage and we never want to see this again. Welcome to the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis, on this special edition of the podcast, our three part series looking at what went down at ERCOT two weeks ago, the mechanisms behind some of the decisions leading to the rolling blackouts, the extended power outages, what needs to be done moving forward so that these sort of things don't happen again. We welcome some of the best minds in both renewables and the energy sector to share their thoughts on what happened and what needs to be done moving forward. In part one, we'll welcome Steve Berbrick, former California. ISO CEO who now lives in the Dallas area. We'll get his thoughts very unique perspective on what went down at ERCOT. Uh, we'll get his thoughts on ERCOT's decision making, differences between what he went through last summer with the California blackouts, as well as some of the differences between that situation and what went down at ERCOT. Very interesting there, as well as whether ERCOT being a standalone grid actually helped or hurt them in this instance. Lots have been made about that. We'll get Steve's perspective as well. And then we'll welcome Ben Parvey, CEO of Blue Sky Power. We had him on episode two of the podcast. He'll discuss the role microgrids. Could have played in all this and what role they'll play moving forward here in the state of Texas, searching for solutions and not assigning blame, as well as will this lead to more folks getting off the grid as a result of what went down over at ERCOT? Very interesting thoughts from him on that as well. We'll touch on episodes two and three of the series on the other side, but without further ado, please welcome to the program Mr. Steve Berbrick, former California ISO CEO.
0: What happened in Texas was multiple fold. I mean, first of all, it was an epic uh, cold spell like Texas probably never seen before and I think when you're working with the electric system, you look at risk and the tails of the risk and in, in Texas you have to look at the tail when it's very hot and the tail when it's really cold And the question is how much can you provide for both of those tails and how far do you go out to handle, you know, the hundred percent risk factor and, you know, going way up that curve, you know, beyond at the tails, it costs a lot more. Um, So the question is then where do we invest our money? I think the entire uh, supply chain basically failed here in Texas along the way. and, And it is multiple fold. Much of the generation, The generation in in Texas is uh, gas-based, and the gas system itself had issues, which likely took out some of the supply. And I also want to (laughs) note, I have no details of exactly what happened. I'm observing from my own expert uh, uh, background on this, but uh, I know gas system had issues and they couldn't supply power plants. Power plants, I don't think, were necessarily situated to handle cold weather. And I would add that you can certainly do that. The northern climes show this. But you also have to consider when you're winterizing, the plants, that they also have to have proper cooling in the summer. So, you know, putting blankets and insulation is fine when you're in Minnesota, but not okay when you're in Texas. So... You're going to have to provide for that. So that'll be part of it as well. And I think there's going to have to be a winterization of the fleet, some level to reduce that risk tail. And I think you'll have to look at the key supply lines of the gas system to to see what risk you want to mitigate in the tail of that as well. So that'll be part of it. Um, I know that uh, one of the nuclear units went down because uh, you know some of their cooling equipment, which is essential to them, had freezing, and they'll have to address that. So I think this is going to be addressed across the board. But let me turn my attention to my my brethren at, at ERCOT, a couple of observations there. One is I think if you had asked them, they probably should have put more warning out And I know their CEO quite well, and I'm sure that he did everything and that organization did everything they could keep in mind, they're responsible for uh, balancing the system and they can balance the system only with what they've got. And with the loss of so much significant generation across the board, coal plants, gas plants, wind, uh, the nuclear, they had no choice but to drop load. Now, I know, based on some of the testimony, they were, you know, four and a half or five minutes away from, you know, total system collapse. And obviously, their mission is to make sure that doesn't happen. And I'm sure they did a good job. And I also would caution people to read too much into that because that is what grid operators do. They, you know, make sure you don't get to that margin. And I think ERCOT probably, you know, did what they had to do uh, to keep that balance and keep system stability. The frequency movement, and I know frequency dipped quite low, frequency itself going too low can trip off plants too. I don't have the data of whether any did, and if so, how much did, and that will have to be looking, looked into because the grid operator would be responsible for making sure the frequency stays in place. Let me just quickly distinguish ERCOT from California as an example where I was. California is a part of the Western grid, and you can get you know, frequency support from a much broader region. Texas is its own grid, so they had to do all this frequency support within themselves. You know, Fred, that's kind of my view on this uh, situation. And I think uh, the last ink has not been spilled on this, and we'll see what uh, what turns up.
3: A lot's been made, Steve, about how Texas is independent and has an ERCOT separated from the rest of the country. How much of a factor would it have made had? Texas been with, uh, connected to the rest of the grids, east and west?
0: Yeah, it's a good question, and I can only speculate. Let me just say this. I do know that the um, the surrounding systems were under strain as well because, and I believe they had some load shed of their own. Um, I'm not certain of that. I want to be clear about that. No, that's true. But that is true. That They were strained as well, and so how much support they could have gotten is under you know a lot of question. Now, if you're connected to a much larger grid, obviously you get some help. But there's there's two coins of that. Um, you're in, if you're connected to the rest, you're also impacted by that too. Um, so there are pros and cons of having your own grid. And Texas likes to have control over the regulatory environment and. The approach at which the grid is managed, and I, you know, I respect that. So I can't say that necessarily in this case it would have helped a lot. Some cases it probably does, but I would also say in some cases it's better that you are separated because um, you're not impacted by impacts of other regions. I know part of your legacy from California was that
2: Western energy and imbalance market that you helped develop. Had California to what was it? Eight or 11 different states, if I remember right?
0: I believe pretty much all the Western states yeah. have a utility now that, that participates in it.
2: If Texas was to create something like that here, based on what you just said, it still might not work based on how the other grids were all having the same strain at the same time. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, Mike. Th- that's exactly what I'm trying to say. That could have it helped. Maybe. Could have heard Also, maybe. What I'm saying is certainly a bigger grid can benefit you in certain circumstances, but also that bigger grid being attached to others can also be a problem in certain circumstances. I think in this case, if I had to guess, they probably could have imported some additional energy, but I don't think they could. I mean, The loss of generation in Texas during this event is just, I mean, tens of thousands of megawatts of generation was offline. I don't think you could get that kind of support from a bigger grid anyway. So in this case, I don't think it would have helped.
2: Just out of curiosity, when you see that number that we were four and a half minutes away from a total blackout, when you're at the California ISO, did you ever get that close to anything like this when you had all the fires and everything going?
0: Well, the fires were never a problem. Did we get close to, well, I mean, we did have cases where we had to shed load to balance the system, and you don't do that. I mean, the last thing you want to do as a grid operator is shed load. There was nobody at ERCOT that wanted to shed load, and they waited to the last possible minute and looked at every available option, I'm sure, before they shed load, and that meant getting closer to the edge. Did we get close? I can't say that we got close to that edge. But certainly we got as close to the edge as we possibly could before we shed load. And that's what grid operators do. So I don't want to read too much into the fact that they were five minutes away from, you know, system collapse, because no doubt they were trying to do all they could to preserve as much load as they could.
3: And, and real quick, just for the folks at home, because we've heard the term shed load uh, quite a bit over the last few weeks, just for in layman's terms, what exactly uh, does shedding load mean from the grid?
0: Those are blackouts, Fred. That's uh, the, the industry term for that is load shed. But uh, for those who are at home, those end up being you know, loss, loss of your electric service. It's a, it's a blackout. But uh, in our world, you're trying to balance load and generation. So it's load shed.
3: As you've watched this unfold, and and like you said, I know you talked about watching the hearings, and I know Mike and I caught some of it, and some of the folks we've talked to watched it as well – one thing that's caught my attention is the 2011 report that came out after we had a situation similar to this. Now, granted, that was only a day or two back in 2011 where it got extreme, and they had to, like I said, there were some, some rolling blackouts back then. And, of course, then they the report came out uh, saying, hey, you know, there needs to be more winterization. There needs to be more winterization from both, you know, uh, uh, pipelines and power plants. None of that was heated, all right? How do we ensure that that doesn't happen again and that we don't have short memories? And now that it's again, 70, 75 degrees here in Texas again, and everybody's putting their AC on and freezer two weeks ago, how do we, how do we keep that same energy as the kids like to say, so that we don't have another, um, you know, situation like this again. And we're having the same discussion with you two, three years from now.
0: Yeah, that's a good question, but I think it it gets to the very nature of the the way the, the market is situated in Texas I mean, they allow prices to go very high to incent people to be available when the prices are very high. And that was the incentive system that was in place in 2011 and certainly uh, this year. Um, And the question, you got to take a step back and say, is that incentive system adequate to make sure these kind of things get done? So um, that's going to have to be part of it. And then, if you do winterize these plants and do those capital investments to make sure they're available, how do they? How do the uh, generation? How does the generation fleet recover those costs? You can order it, um, but I think you'll have to take a step back then and look at the design of the markets. How do these compensation systems work to make sure that the capacity is available? Keep in mind. Texas doesn't have a capacity market like many of the Eastern ISOs do. And California had a resource adequacy program, which was sort of a proxy for an administrative capacity market. Texas doesn't have that. So I think you're going to have to take a step back and figure out exactly what market mechanisms need to exist to make sure that these plants, if they're ordered to do it, they're going to have to have a cost recovery system. If they're using the incentive system, you have to make sure they do it. So I think that's going to be the the question at hand. How do you make sure that doesn't happen again?
2: Do you see them putting in place a rule that future wind developments have to have that winterized turbine just to make sure wind keeps going the best they can?
0: I think you're going to have to look across the entire fleet, whether it's, I'd, I'd rather not distinguish between a gas plant, a coal plant, and, and wind power. They all are going to have to be able to, obviously, there is a risk tail that is not properly provided for here in Texas, and that's going to have to be looked at. How do you mitigate that risk? And I think the wind and uh, the other technologies all are going to have to look at winterization. How you do that, I think, is, is a is a bigger question.
3: I think the one thing we can take from this is that, again, as much as we want to be clean, and we all do, it's not going to happen overnight, and that we need to find a, quote, pun intended, sustainable way for green and fossil fuels to work together so that we avoid what happened two weeks ago.
0: No, I I think that's right, and I think that's the the, the million-dollar question is how do you properly integrate renewables and have sort of your backup fleet and things like that. I think in Texas, interestingly enough, they have the biggest wind um, portfolio of any place in the, in the nation. That's an essential part of their fleet, and they're going to have to figure out how to make sure that risk is mitigated, too. So I want to reiterate the point that it's, they're going to have to look at across the entire technology base and the entire supply chain for this situation to find out exactly where the vulnerabilities exist and what they need to do about it. Uh, how do you, uh, how do you make sure that, uh, the system works together? Cause this was a, a tragic situation.
3: From what you could glean, is there any similarities between what you went through last summer in California? What were some of the biggest differences that you've noticed and how this whole thing's unfolded, uh, versus what you went through almost a year ago?
0: Uh, I think they're very different events. So let me just say that. I think what similarities you can draw is, uh, Again, you know, planning for risk mitigation. I think in, in, in California's case, it's uh, what do you, how do you mitigate, you know, this massive heat storm that, that will dry up your imports and cause other very high load conditions. Now, Texas obviously had to do, deal with very high load conditions, but I think they're very, very different. Uh, we didn't lose, uh, you know, for instance, we didn't lose our fleet. It wasn't a fleet collapse problem like it was in Texas that caused our issue. We had very high loads, and we had a combination of of not getting the imports that we normally get. So that was, they're different situations for sure.
3: Communication being one of the biggest issues. Why wait until Sunday night and not give folks more notice as to, hey, this is the potential for what this thing could, could do?
0: You know, Fred, that's a question I'm gonna to have to punt on. I mean, I, um, I don't know who knew what when, so it's very hard for me to say that they should have communicated more or you know what they knew when they knew it and who they communicated.
3: Totally understand. What was kind of, what was your protocol in California for how kind of how did you guys let folks know when the rolling blackouts were, were getting ready to go down?
0: In our case, we knew that we had very high load conditions so that we're setting up for an issue. And I'm just talking about the August uh, sure, sure, 2020 sure. load loss in California. We told people that we expected a problem in the coming days. We told the, uh, the governor's office, as an example, and we told others. And the governor said, you know, he asked for conservation. But the extreme nature of it left us a bit unprepared, and we could have, I think, in hindsight, we could have looked at that and known more. I don't think we could have avoided some of the load shed that happened, per se. But I will also say that I think part of the communication is to mitigate it. There's a lot about the California load shed, but it didn't—it wasn't that much load, to be honest with you. The first night, it was 1,000 megawatts out of a 50,000 megawatt system not that much. And the second one was 500 out of a 50,000 megawatts. So it wasn't that much, not nearly the magnitude of what happened out here. But I also want to get into the mind of a grid operator. Grid operators, what you don't know is they're sort of behind the scenes making sure that nothing happened. And it gets hot in California and we get high loads and we get close to the edge all the time. The question is, when are you going to tip over that edge? And you got to be careful about crying wolf because you people ignore you. So you can't call wolf all the time. And it's very hard to distinguish which side of that line are you going to end up on. Now, I think in our case, again, it was pretty close to the line. And, you know, there are many, many times where we had very difficult days and no one knew because we took care of it and it was fine. I think in this case, in Texas's case, I don't think that the grid operator ERCOT, in this case, understood the magnitude of loss of generation. Nor do I think it would be normal that a grid operator would expect that level of loss of generation. So I think that's what caught everybody by surprise. It was just an unprecedented call it meltdown, you know, over the generation fleet. If I were at ERCON, I probably wouldn't have been able to predict such, certainly you could have predicted high loads, but you couldn't have predicted the meltdown that happened.
2: Is there any time during that moment you looked at your wife and said, I'm glad I'm not in that room having to make that decision anymore?
0: Well, I didn't have that conversation with my wife, but I've had that conversation with lots of people. I am certainly glad I was not in that situation. And I will also tell you that the load sheds are a gift that just keeps giving and, um, the chaos that ensued here in Texas. I know that there was a, that you know, an entity filed for bankruptcy this morning. I know yep. that the uh, market is short for paying people. It's just a gift that just keeps giving. And I think this one is too. And where, where this all ends up, I think remains to be seen. It's, uh, during, I wasn't at the Ice, the California ISO, when the energy crisis there occurred. There's litigation that's still not quite wow. so here it is, you know, 20 years later.
2: Yeah, I know that. Uh, I saw that Ken Paxton, the attorney general, is now suing Gritty and yeah. uh, the cooperative Brazos, Brazos Cooperative, they filed their bankruptcy and they're the oldest co op electric up in the state. So, yeah, I think there's probably more to come.
0: I, asked I agree to with you. Well, and then hedging comes into place that weren't, you know, that weren't hedged, didn't have long term right. contracts. And if you're a, you know, if you're a load serving at a rep, I guess they call them here, a retail energy provider here in Texas, and you're caught short, you had to pay very high prices. And could you pass them on? This is a case of, of Gritty. You know, can they pass it on to their customers? You saw some high, that's how high they go. Those uh, when you have wholesale prices, they go very high.
3: Now, you're yeah. in the Dallas area, correct, Steve? I am. Is water affected? The water underlying
0: power in my, my jurisdiction, the underlying uh, water supply has not been impacted. However, pretty much every other home, or I'm going to guess two-thirds of the homes in my neighborhood, have some, some damage from water pipes uh, bursting. So that's been the the more immediate issue up here and I'm sure that's the case across certainly across North Texas if not much of Texas there's so much damage from burst water pipes. I have seen repair trucks everywhere.
3: Were you surprised how much infrastructure damage was was it caused or was affected by this?
0: No, um, I think it just goes back to show you exactly how very essential the electric system is across all kinds of fronts. I mean, if I take this apart, you wouldn't have had broken water pipes because people would have had their heat on in their home and they could have, you know, kept the pipes as warm as possible. You still would have had some because the extreme cold, but not near we had. And I know that water systems rely very much on the electric system. Sewage treatment plants are heavy consumers of electricity. I mean, on and on and on. Our society and our economy is very much attached to the electric system, and as you, when particularly when you have long outages like you had, um, you're going to have damage.
3: Put your ERCOT hat on for just a second. They make Steve Berbrick honorary CEO for a day over ERCOT. What else would you be looking at to potentially fix, and/or suggestions you would make moving forward for ERCOT?
0: I would say it's not just ERCOT. You gotta look at the Public Utility Commission too. And they're kind of they're gonna have to work together on this situation because some you know some the the authority that they have to go fix this, I think has to be established. And let's call winterization as an example. Who who can order it? And does it take le- legislation to do it? Or can the PUC order it? ERCOT can't order it. So if I'm the CEO, I'm working with you know the policymakers and the Public Utility Commission to come up with the ten things that need to get done. I'm sure ERCOT's going to have to look at, as I mentioned, some of the market mechanisms maybe are inadequate, um, and how do you how do you deal with that? I think you got to come up with those things and work with the policymakers and the regulatory authorities. That's what I would do if I was uh, was there.
3: So if they approach you for a uh, board member position, because apparently there's about six or seven openings. <laughs>
0: Uh, nobody's called and I'm not sure I'd want to do that right now to be honest with you really it's a high stress thing being in grid operators uh, sounds like it by golly I, it's one of those things uh been there done that um,
3: got the t-shirt well, the blackouts to prove it so
0: it was better to be on this side of it than on that side of it that's for sure really because
3: he yeah <laughs>
0: look. I've been in the, uh, in the control room when these decisions are made, and um, I've watched firsthand the conditions that exist and the stress that the people uh, are under. And as I said earlier, um, this is going to be a gift that keeps giving. And not only are you doing postmortems on what happened and how do you make sure it doesn't happen again, you've got credit issues across the board. You've got people that can't pay their bills. You got, you know, how do you settle this? I mean, it's it's across the board, and I, I'm sure they're having to deal with all of that. In fact, I'm not sure people grasp the, the range of things they're going to have to try to deal with, so I'm sure their hands are full. Clearly, the U.S., more and more, on the state level and on the federal level, believe that you have to decarbonize the economy. And, to do that, you're going to have to take carbon, you know carbon producing elements out of the system, and that's where natural gas comes in. I think that we're going to have a big existential movement toward electrifying everything. And that makes the electric system even more important. I'll leave that to the policymakers to decide whether that's the right thing to do. But I do believe the electric system is going to be more and more important. And then you got to go back and look at these risk tails that I was talking about earlier. If it's going to be more and more important and people are going to move to things like that, uh, to electric heat and and all those kinds of things, then you're going to have to make sure the system is even more prepared, I believe.
3: Thank you so much, Steve. Now let's welcome Mr. Ben Parvey, CEO of Blue Sky Power. We know you, right. Texas needs microgrids now. Where was it prior to ERCOT happening?
1: Yeah, not not really on the radar at all. I mean, given the price of power in, in ERCOT, you know, there was some of the some of the potential supply shortages uh, a few summers ago. Not really on our radar, primarily for a few reasons. I mean. You know, a lack of incentives on distributed generation and really on the price of power. I mean, when when price of power is in the, you know, sub sub eight, nine cents, making a microgrid work is not ideal. When you look at eastern seaboard, California, after the wildfires, you know, most of the microgrid industry wasn't wasn't really focused on Texas at all.
3: I didn't realize there's only two hundred microgrids in Texas, apparently. And I guess again to your point though, I mean, when when again when you got power so cheap, it doesn't initially necessitate it. What's the conversation now? What are you hearing from your your colleagues and your cohorts here in the great state of Texas following the aftermath? A huge peak in interest. You
1: know, and, and I guess I wouldn't say just on microgrids alone, but on solutions. So I mean we we published widely about this, you know, from, from LinkedIn to our blog and, you know, had lots of conversations with people um, regarding while it was happening, you know, so poweroutages.us, we've gotten a lot of data from them and we were watching the map very closely, you know, as it was occurring. A good friend of ours too, that Mike may know, texted me Sunday night as this was happening about the forward pricing of energy, that it was getting way up there. And that something bad was happening, Um, you know, and by the next morning we had, you know, went from, you know, a couple million to 3 million to 4 million people out of power. What am I hearing? You know, a lot of people talking about the grid, talking about energy, talking about microgrids. I've been talking about this stuff for 13, 14 years. Or so After Superstorm Sandy, after Irma, after Maria. You know, there, there are widespread power outages from though after after Hurricane Sandy up here. You know, people talk about this stuff a lot after it happens and then they forget really quickly. I, I'm not trying to say that there's not a fundamental shift that can yeah, and should occur. People get distracted. The, the weather's going to start getting warmer. Everyone's going to be outside. The power is going to stay on. Not not unless there's you know serious summer storms, which there will be. You know, until people start talking about it again. So everyone's talking about it right now. Having been through many cycles of bad storms, um, we haven't seen enough forward motion. We are seeing a lot of a lot more policy discussions on microgrids and you know incentives for microgrids and the need for more distributed generation but these are all things we've known for a long time. This isn't new information. It, it, it's a market driver that, that people have to actually grab onto and do something with. I mean, so everyone in the industry can be all about it, but it's the, it's the industry and the, the municipalities and the commercial entities that need to make a decision to accept the proposals that the industry's given them and move on.
0: For our
2: listeners that may not actually be energy experts, if somebody has a solar panel on their house, and all this would have happened, would they have still been able to draw power from the solar panel or no, because it goes to the grid first and then back to them?
1: It's net metered. And I mean, the utilities control and the Board of Public Utilities or Public Utility Commissions or Public Service Commissions, whatever they're called in your respective state, you know, they, they have it when you have solar that it's tied to a net meter, and when the grid goes down, your solar goes down. So there's no resiliency with solar, which is why Blue Sky Power is going to be taking people totally off-grid, use solar combined with battery storage and backup generation and exceptional customer service to get rid of the, the archaic grid. It's just unnecessary.
2: Why don't you tell us more about that with your firm, Blue Sky. We've created peak
1: by Blue Sky. And essentially it's for residential and small commercial facilities, solar battery storage, and backup generation, take people totally off grid. Yeah, you know, we've designed not only the systems to do that, but with guaranteed uptime, we're able to uh, beat the utilities on pricing as well as customer experience in a way that, you know, has been unparalleled in this industry that, you know, is a hundred and twenty-year-old archaic industry built on unstable structures. In our modern lives in 2021, it's just, it's unbelievable that all our our modern conveniences and devices and everything are powered by 120-year-old technology.
3: When you're telling somebody you're taking them off the grid and and this microgrid or this, you know, peak by blue sky is going to be able to do that for them, how are they going to get their electricity then? What exactly does that entail for those folks for just a a very basic understanding?
1: Your energy is produced on site, you know, not sent from a power plant 200 miles away over wires you have no control over power is produced on site by solar battery storage and backup generation so you have redundancy so there's there's no reason to fear you know technologies that have been in place for you know many many decades you know for 50 years plus keep you powered up it's not not novel and it's a, a much better way to make sure your family is safe Years ago, when people would say, hey, you know, we're getting off the grid, I'd be like, no, you're not. You know, we're just, you're putting in solar and, you know, you're getting sustainable energy, but, you know, really it's net metered and you get, you know, that's not really a construct that works. Right? But, you know, there are private property rights and utilities have a a monopoly that isn't serving the customers. So it's a concept that for many years, we said not something that available in the marketplace. And so we work with the interconnection agreements and we work the established protocols. You know, the utilities have have said, given lip service for many years to, uh, you know, reduce reduce greenhouse gas reductions and for distributed generation. You know, there are a bunch of places where, you know, they don't even approve solar on rooftops. Uh, You know, you got to go through the utilities and comply Mm -hmm. with their guidelines. So, you know, this is America where there are private property rights. And to have the utilities tell people what they can and can't do is almost unfathomable. On top of that, if you can't keep their lights on and keep Americans from freezing, you know, or from you know sweating or dying in harsh conditions, then you don't deserve your monopoly. You don't. You didn't deserve it in the first place. But this is a country of free enterprise and of property rights. And for years, you know, we've kowtowed out and said, oh, you know, please grant our interconnection agreements. Said, you know, we'll play nice with the utilities and give us the incentives that you give us. But I just, I, I don't, I don't think it's viable anymore. I think it's time. Yeah, I think we've come too far. And too many of these disasters in the last 10 years have seen too many people put at risk and you know it's no longer uh, appropriate to be complacent. And for you know, these monopolies to tell the public utility commissions and elected officials that that's the way it is. It's not the way it is. We're an, an innovative nation that has the, the passion, the know-how and the capability to you know, provide for ourselves and for our communities. Um, And we think about power generation, you know, the first power generation were you know, those old metal windmills next to farms. You know, that's where power started. Mm -hmm. It didn't start by having a giant, you know, nuke or coal or gas or oil plant 200 miles away getting transmitted over transmission lines. So I don't buy it that this is the way it has to be. And so we're taking, you know, firm steps today to create the grid of the future. And at that, we're going to train you know, hundreds of thousands of workers to build the grid of the future. And that grid is, you know, connected via technology, not through wires.
2: Gotcha. Now let's,
1: I'm let's not, that, it, I'm not that passionate about it. As you can tell yeah.
2: Well, <laughs> yeah, you're not passionate at all. Let's put it in dollar and cents real quick. Sure. Here in Texas, you know, you used uh, eight cents or less as your example. Yeah. So let's say it's eight cents if a manufacturing plant wanted to go off grid, like you just described, what's the cost to do that? How much more is it going to cost him to do that? So he could then determine whether he wants to be able to guarantee with all the climate change going on. And with uh, all these once in a thousand year events, we keep having having in the last five years, <laughs> uh, he's going to stay in business. What's right. that going to cost him to do just as a, as a guess number.
1: Yeah. I, I, let me go back a little bit, and that is the cost of resiliency. So as you talk about that, a business owner needs to take into account lost product, lost, uh, product and productivity. So, and not just a business owner, I mean, you know, a hospital, a senior living facility, uh, you know, a college, university, uh, you know, police station. I mean, this isn't just you know, dollars and cents for big business. This is, you know, keeping the lights on so you can serve people, you know, at your small restaurant or the dry cleaner. You know, when you're down and not having power, there's lost product and productivity, as well as you know, health and safety of you know your your workers or your family or your team, and so, um, you know, there's a cost to that resiliency. So, you know, when you look at utilities from when when you turn your utility meter count on. They're your provider in perpetuity. So from now until the end of time, you're going to write them a check at that, one of your biggest line items in your personal or business budget, every single month. And most people don't understand the kilowatt hours, the kilowatt demand, the supply, delivery, distribution, and all these concepts that they put in the bill. And we just send them our money. And they guarantee us, you know, a a certain level of of customer service for sure, uh, or even keeping the, the lights on. So when the lights are off... you you want to factor in that you have lost product and productivity and what's the value of resiliency. And so you can calculate that. What do you lose for every single minute or every single hour that you're without power? You know, in the case of, of Texas, how many days, what does that mean? How much does that cost you? Um, So there's a value of resiliency and then add on on top of that, you know, what to pay. They should be able to pay grid parity. I mean, it should be the same cost that you pay now, because if we take them off grid, and they're signing up to be our customer for, you know, from here to perpetuity, we can guarantee them that we're going to keep the lights on. We're not going to let the power go down and we're going to provide them exceptional customer service and also, uh, you know, empower their communities. We're going to be a part of their community and we're going to help them stay powered on and keep meals getting delivered and keep uh, people at work and keep people safe. So um, there's a value to that, but, it should be the same they're currently paying for electric, you know, not much, not much more, not much less. I mean, we can fund these projects, you know, over a, a 30 year basis. And when they're signing on to be our, our customer, the same way they sign on to be the utilities customer for life, um, we'll guarantee them exceptional customer service at, at a reasonable price. And each, pro- you know, each facility is different. Each uti- facility uses energy differently. The hope is always that they can pay less, but sometimes it may be about the same, sometimes cases it may be slightly more but it's not going to be something that doesn't make economic sense
3: how does peak blue sky work for the homeowner
1: yeah i i mean it works even easier for the homeowner i mean you know home profiles you know are are fairly straightforward yeah. and not as complicated as a you know an industrial facility that uses process steam to build stuff um yeah less complicated than a hospital
3: you're not going to need near as much
1: obviously Right. And look at how efficient our homes have gotten. I mean, between LED lighting and, you know, Energy Star appliances, homes don't consume what they used to consume. So, um, you know, similarly, we'll be offering people, it depends what what state you're in. I mean, we're still dealing with, you know, Texas energy prices being pretty low, but people now see the value of resiliency. I mean, when you have families, you know, burning fencing and kids' toys to stay warm, you know, that's a problem. I mean, you might you might be paying a couple dollars more each month, you know, if you're in a place that has really cheap electric like uh, like Texas. But, you know, someone that actually
3: cares about you is going to pick up the phone. and. For 99.7% of us, we're back to normal again. How do the things that need to be done, the winterization, whether it's the wind turbines, whether it's a power plant, whether it's a, a power line, whatever, who needs to enforce that that's going to get done just taking the Texas example specifically, I mean, you're, you're asking the question specifically
1: related to Texas. Yes. We posted a lot of things about this, and we had over 20,000 people view our articles, and that was a couple of days ago. It's probably more than that at this point, but more than we've ever had related to things we're posting on social. And the comments, interestingly, were were very political, And I'm amazed at how political it was. So it was either natural gas is horrible, and this is because the natural gas plants or wind turbines are horrible, and Ted Cruz's fault, or it's Joe Biden's fault. Like I said, in the things we're talking about, we're talking about being Americans, and we're talking about a market-based system, as well as a country where people care for their neighbors and their communities. I just don't see how this was political. And I know you didn't ask that, but I do want to make that point that you're asking how you see this, this going forward, I got to say, it's, uh, it's really surprising that 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 was the response. But, you know, as far as how to address it, the reason I I raised that first on the political side is to say that I have uh, worked with, you know, Democrats and Republicans on, on, you know, energy solutions for a long time. And it, it made me sad that people brought this into a political dialogue, instead of a how do we help our communities? And how do we improve, you know, our grid infrastructure as a community, as a state and as a country. And, you know, those solutions, this is only hearsay, but I mean, someone had told me earlier this week, there was a report that was submitted to Rick Perry when he was governor, stating that utility infrastructure in Texas was not, was not winterized and that something needed to be done about it. And the utilities then went to the public utility commission and said, Yeah, but that's expensive, you know, don't make us do that. And and they hadn't done it. Again, someone told me that. I didn't read it independently. It's hearsay. So, you know, don't count it. I'm sure someone will tell me I'm wrong. But you have to know that if all of the pumps for getting gas to the to you know from the pipeline to the combined cycle plants and the gas plants are winterized in you know in Pennsylvania that they should be rated for you know zero or 10 degrees in Texas as well. And I'm pretty sure that the engineers who designed that at some point knew that too. And I'm also pretty sure, having been in this industry a long time, that some financier, some contractor, someone paying for it said, what can we do to value engineer and reduce the costs on this? And someone said, eh, we don't have to winterize these things. It was brought up and a decision was made somewhere that there's a cheap, ah, you know, in Texas, it doesn't get that cold. Yeah, but it it, it does every now and then, you know, just like citing a building, they deal with the 100 year floodplain, you know, like, yeah. you have to deal with where the water will get to in 100 years. Well, here, it's where how far the temperature will go. And like, you know, are these things made for it? And this isn't a fault of wind turbines, but it is important to note the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. And renewables are not just the only answer. They're a big part of the answer. This should not cause a fault to wind turbines because somehow the wind turbines off of Cape Cod with nor'easters ripping through (laughs) at freezing temperatures have continued to turn without problem. So they could have
3: and should have been winterized. In your view, how does this affect renewables' their standing? Is it is it good, bad, and different? I feel some way it's it's actually probably a good thing in some capacity. Where where do you fall as far as where how renewables uh, fared one of their bigger tests? I mean, there's no going back. No, absolutely coal plants are being
1: closed, retired, and we have tons of natural gas in the U.S. And solar and wind have seen the largest increase in approvals for, you know, grid-tied plants. That investment's not going to go backwards. And we're also not permitting more nuclear. You know, I I don't envision where people are now just going to turn on renewables. I mean, again, it perhaps it's somewhat political so we're dealing with certain regions and maybe that's what it is, right to proliferate renewables but fact of the matter is a big part of the the Texas energy um, hub has been related to the wind turbines in Texas and Oklahoma when when all those companies say hey we're 100% renewable <laughs> you know, it's cuz they're buying Texas wind racks or they're buying you know Texas wind supply and you know BlackRock requires all their investments and all their portfolio companies to take sustainability into account that's not going back when when you know most of the institutional investors in the world and most of the large insurers require you know resiliency and a you know a, a sustainability plan there's not where we turn back and go ah you know forget the renewables let's just go back to to burning coal so yeah i, I don't see a, a major impact i mean there's there's so many people doing such wonderful work, uh, building renewables, and so many, you know, from from local, you know, mom and pop shops installing solar as a part of their home services to right. the largest global investors, you know, from Goldman Sachs to Black BlackRock putting billions and billions of dollars nationally and globally into it. There's we're not going back. We just make it better. You, you make it better. You, you add in battery storage. You make it more resilient. You have, you know, natural gas generation to be able to add backup if you need to. And you know, you have a solution that is becoming more and more cost effective. When I first started this business 13 years ago to install a solar system was eight dollars a watt. Now it's a dollar fifty a watt.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah, for a larger scale system. So there's there's no going back. I mean it's 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 at grid parity and cost competitive. So you just make it better you have to continually innovate and technology does always keep getting better and better. I I don't know the specifics of what model wind turbines. I mean, I've never developed a wind project. I've looked at a few years and years ago, but you know, we've done tons of solar projects. So my perspective, when you ask me about renewables, I generally think of solar as where some people predominantly think of wind. Some people think of geothermal. I don't have enough expertise to say on the wind turbines, but as much wind development with the production tax credit that went on in Texas, over the years, I mean, some of those turbines may be, you know, 10, 15 years old and older technology. Yeah, and on renewables, the gas turbines and the gas pipe, I mean, it was all everything, you know, the grid, everything was to blame in in this scenario. And, yeah, there doesn't even need to be blame. Like, everyone needs to do better. And we learned it from that. And you learn from that lesson. You don't say, oh, this, this happened to me. You say this happened for us and we're gonna make it better. But having a, a backslide on renewables because of this, I mean, those gas plants should have kicked on. Trying to point the finger at renewables is a ton of misinformation because I wouldn't point the finger anywhere other than collectively saying, a lot of people drop the ball here.
3: Thank you for that, Mr. Ben Parvey and Steve Berbrick, for your participation in this ERCOT series. Part two coming out on Thursday. Welcome to the program Evan Curran, founder of ClearTrace and HGP Storage, former power broker as well, so he knows ERCOT very, very intimately. And then Ken Donahue, early ERCOT employee, now Senior Director of Engineering for Electric Power Engineers over in Austin. So we'll be, we'll be curious to get their perspectives on what went down on Thursday. And then, of course, part three is coming out next week week. You'll hear from Ed long longtime U of H lecturer, as well as co founder of Zero Carbon Cycle. So we'll hear from him as we round this thing out. Thank you so much again for your time and interest in the ERCOT series. Don't forget, you can catch all of the Green Insider Podcast over at Apple iTunes, Google Play, as well as Spotify. And if you check us out over on Apple iTunes, please leave us a five star rating. Why? Because we promise that you learned more about renewable energy and maybe ERCOT than you did before you dropped by. It's the Green Insider Podcast powered by e-Renewable ERCOT series. We make going green easier.